Well, good morning, Gospel Hope, um, and welcome to Post Father's Day. Uh, it's good to see you again, or good at least for you to see me again, and hopefully um, I will get a chance to see you soon. I pray that all is well with you. Um, I've had a, a great um, time over the last couple of weeks in God's Word, and I am looking forward to sharing with you some of the things that He has been challenging my heart with. But before we open today's uh, scripture and continue in our series, In the Waiting, I'd like to pray for us. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, we come this morning. We lift up your holy name, declare that you are God over all things. You are Lord and you are Father and you are Master. Lord God, we savor in each one of those designations or names that you have given us, titles that you've given us. And we pray, O oh God, that you would show up in our lives this morning in whatever way you see fit. We thank you for the beautiful, powerful, uh, sharp, and uh, forever relevant provision of your word and ask now that you would walk us through it and give us exactly what we need for this current season that we are in. Uh, this we pray in the matchless and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, speaking of the season that we are in, uh, we couldn't think of a more appropriate way to walk through the Bible than to grab hold of a text that talks about what it means to wait on the Lord or how we wait in him or how we wait on him, right? Waiting has a lot of different implications. And so, you know, here we find ourselves on one side in society with uh, these uh, new um, sentiments and social unrest on one hand, and then of course we've got uh, COVID-19, which is not in the background, even though maybe some of our ways and behaviors and attitudes are starting to feel that, it is very much still a clear and present threat in our culture. And what is the Lord expecting of his church during this time with these two simultaneous uh, crises, if you will, uh, and how should we as individual members of the church uh, be living out our lives? What does he want to do in our lives uh, during this time of waiting? Well, as I thought about that, I was reflecting on my childhood. These stories are not uh, unfamiliar to you, but this one I've never told. It was the first time that I was tall enough to look inside of a top load washing machine. Uh, now at this time, as you know how old I am, top load washing machines did not have the clear lid with the full, fully lit digital panel looking like a miniature spaceship. Back in my day, uh, washing machines were just solid white metal with a few nondescript knobs with the letters wearing off at the back. And at certain times of the day, the washing machine would get angry and it would stomp its feet and rattle to the side like some kind of rocket that was getting ready to take off. And I was always intrigued as to what in the world is going on inside the washer. Well, one day I realized I was tall enough to open the lid and look inside. And when my parents weren't around, I figured I would conduct my own private investigation. And so on um, this particular day, I went over to the washing machine while it was in mid-cycle and uh, I snuck up to it, opened the lid, and guess what? Whatever it was doing on the inside, it immediately stopped. Okay, that's one of the functions of the washer, is that it doesn't do its thing while you're watching it or when you have the lid open. It didn't take me long to figure out that I needed to just jam something in the little hole uh, that lets the washer think that the lid is closed so that I could continue to see this phenomenal, magical activity. I mean, how exactly does it get the clothes clean? And what's all it is? bobbling and stumping and bumping about when that happens. And so I needed to catch the washing machine doing what it does at various cycles. And so here I was at the very opening cycle, which seemed to be relatively low temperament, open the lid, 
and I stick something like a screwdriver in the little slot to make sure that it thinks the lid is still closed and I look there and I am grossly underwhelmed. You know why? Because all I see is this tall cylindrical structure that I now know today is called the agitator just gently, constantly moving repetitively back and forth. And I'm saying to myself, man, I was hoping for something more robust, like what I see at the drive-in car wash with, you know, brushes and water spraying from various directions and strong air beating the water off of the car. But how does a washing machine get the clothes to be so clean just by gradually, subtly agitating the clothes? The reason that I tell that story is because I believe that that simple motion of the agitator is something like what we are experiencing in our culture right now. I believe that the Lord uses, not causes, but uses, and maybe at times he does cause, but I believe that the Lord uses agitation during times of waiting to help us as believers and even non-believers recognize what is most essential. Let's be honest. Three months ago, early March, before any of the quarantine came, uh, we lived lives and allowed things that were essential and non-essential to live with very close proximity. On the shelves in our hearts and in our minds and in our homes, there probably wasn't a very real differentiation between the things that are essential and non-essential. But only after about a month, we began to recognize what trips we made out of our homes were essential versus non-essential. We immediately recognize that what goods and products were essential and non-essential during this time of waiting. Well, much like our activities in and out of the home uh, during these times of both quarantine and social unrest, I believe that the Lord uses waiting to help us to make some spiritual evaluations and inventory of things that are essential and non-essential. Today we're going to cover 1 Thessalonians verses, I mean chapter 2 verses 17 through chapter 3 verse 13. You have already heard a portion of it read, but I'd like to reread a portion of this passage to help us set the tone for today's message and particularly to get a better understanding of how God uses the agitation of crisis and seasons of waiting to help us look at and define what is most essential in our life. Verse 17 begins this way, but since we were torn away from you brothers for a short time in person, but not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or our joy or our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? These are rhetorical questions. You are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and to exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. 
For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that you or we were to suffer affliction. And just as it has come to pass, and just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. And then listen to this transition beginning at verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love that was reported that you always remembered us kindly and you longed to see us and we long to see you. And for this reason, brothers, in all of our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. I'm going to pause there as we'll get to the remaining passages throughout the course of the message. But something really unique happened here in this handful of verses that I just read. Two things leap off the text, and I had never seen Paul mention the work of Satan twice like he has here. He mentioned earlier in the text that he says, uh, uh, um, Satan hindered me. I, Paul, desired to come to you, but Satan hindered me from getting there. And then he later said that we wanted to send Timothy to check on you because we wanted to make sure that the work of disciple making, the, the, the discipleship and uh, uh, growing you in Christ had not been in vain or that Satan had tempted you away during this time of affliction. Two mentions that Satan gets in the text. We can't ignore that. We've got to talk about it. But what we also cannot ignore is the deep and incredible emotion that Paul shares for the saints at Thessalonica. Where is this coming from? I mean, is it just a, a general weeping or sorrow or empathy or sympathy? Where is all this emotion coming from? Well, it isn't just emotion, ladies and gentlemen. He says, we not only desire to see you face to face, but our hearts, we feel like we've been torn away from you. This, this word here in verse 17, for since we were torn away from you, brothers, is identical to the term that would be used to describe the relationship between children ripped away from their parents or ones who have been made orphans. And so this is a very powerful thing to recognize in the text. And there are two things in all of these verses that I believe we should pay attention to. More than two, but two major things. And they are these. That there is spiritual welfare of the people that... Uh, Paul is concerned about, and there is spiritual warfare happening in the lives of the people that Paul is concerned about. And I believe that that spiritual welfare and spiritual warfare are these two agitating forces that allow both the believers at Thessalonica and us to focus in and to see what things are more essential. And so just kind of as a capstone for today's message, we'll, we'll follow this idea. The Lord uses waiting to make us aware of what is most essential. The Lord uses waiting to make us aware of what is most essential. You see, the agitator in a washing machine, as it moves back and forth, isn't just a stage play. That mechanical movement actually separates the dirt from the clothing. It separates the essential from the non-essential. And so how exactly does God use this idea or this, this, these ideas of spiritual welfare, spiritual warfare during waiting to bring about what is most essential. And what is most essential during these times? 
As we read through this passage, there are six ideas that I believe stand at the center of the text that help us fully appreciate spiritual welfare and spiritual warfare that I want to point out to you. The six ideas, don't be afraid because you may say, whoa, that's going to be a lot of points. And it will be, but they're relatively compact. But the six ideas that I don't want us to miss in the text that are the markers of spiritual welfare are these. Hope, found in uh, chapter 2, verse 19. Joy, also chapter 2, verse 19. Our crown, uh, chapter 2, verse 19. Our faith, chapter 3, verses 2 through 3. Our love, uh, chapter 3, verse 12, and our holiness or our blamelessness before God in chapter 3, verse 13. So six things that are important markers of spiritual welfare. Paul was concerned about them in his own life and concerned about them in the lives of those that he served in Thessalonica. They are, once again, hope, joy, and our crown, our faith, our love, and our holiness. Once again, they are our hope, our joy, our crown, our faith, our love, and our holiness. These are the things that I believe during times of waiting, the Lord agitates to allow us to see what is most essential. You see, everybody in life has some form of hope, some kind of joy, some sense of crown or boasting, something that represents arrival, victory, and accomplishment some type of faith, something that they love, and absolutely some sense of behavior, morality, or some kind of code of ethics that they live by that gives them an indication that they are thriving or living well during any time in life. So everybody has these markers, but the question is, how do we define them? And how are they defined biblically for us? And why are these things indicative of spiritual welfare? Well, we're going to explore that, but not only are we going to explore how those are the uh, underpinnings of our spiritual welfare, but we also need to pay attention to spiritual warfare. You see, in much the same regard that our hope, our joy, and our crown, our faith, our love, and our pursuit of holiness or blamelessness before God are the markers of our spiritual welfare, they are simultaneously the targets of spiritual warfare. Now you've heard it said over in other places in the Bible and you know the passage well there in Ephesians chapter 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, right? But against principalities and powers and, and evil and demonic forces in high places. We understand that while there are things that are happening at the material level, that's not the end of the story and that's not the only story. And so it is a part of our spiritual welfare even learning from the previous passages we've covered in earlier weeks about our discernment being increased, the ability to recognize good and evil, right and wrong, this is when those skills or those spiritual attributes become all the more crucial. It's when the Lord allows through agitation, Satan's agenda is to steal, kill, and destroy, but the Lord takes that agenda and providentially uses it to separate those things that are essential from what's non-essential. And we wanna understand how should I be growing? Again, in my hope, in my joy, and in my crown, and with my, or in my faith, love, and holiness. So, with those, follow me carefully in the passage as we kind of unpack those. What exactly is our hope? How do we anchor our hope? Well, we don't have to define it uh, at random. We can look right here in the passage. 
Paul says in verse 18, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or our joy or our boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Twice, more than once, the coming of Christ is mentioned as the ultimate hope of the believer. This should also be our hope. Our hope should be to be with the Christ at his coming. That should be the principle and the ultimate hope of the believer. I want to sit there for a moment and let you just soak in that. Our hope should be to be with the Christ at his coming. If our hope is anything shorter than, lighter than, other than that, we are not growing spiritually the way that we should. We ought to have a hope that has that long reach to be with the Christ. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 5, put it this way. For we know that if we, if, uh, excuse me, if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, in this body, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting on, uh, putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we should be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So what is this, uh, so what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Uh, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God and who has given us the spirit as guarantee. You see, in the life of the believer, our hope should be anchored in a longing to be with Christ. Let me unpack that for you a little bit more because I feel like maybe we're struggling to connect on this particular idea. I know that academically all believers know that that's the end game. But there's two types of longing that I, we could probably readily locate in our own lives, and I want to show you how they differ and which one is most aligned with how we should long for the Christ. Um, since in, during my working years, I have longed for retirement, and therefore I have been making incremental investments for my retirement in anticipation of it when the day would come, right? So there's a certain longing there. But there's something else that I've also made incremental investments in, and that is life insurance. That is, at, my, um, at the point that I should expire, if the Lord is willing that I go home to be with him before my beneficiaries, that is, before my family, then I have set aside uh, an opportunity for them to flourish. Now, here's the deal. I long for retirement in a way that is completely different from how I long to see my insurance policy paid out at the time of my death. I feel like there are times in this life if we have fallen too carefully or too uh, uh, intimately in love with this life, that our longing for the Lord's return is more like the putting in place of a nice insurance policy. We hope that it does pay out when we expire, but man, we ain't longing for the day like we are for our retirement. You see, in our retirement, we're making incremental investments in both that and the insurance, but our hope for that is that we long to be there one day, to enjoy life as provided by this retirement season. But we don't often long for life in or with the Lord at his coming. This is something that the heart must be trained to love during seasons of waiting. 
Only in soaking in the Lord's presence, spending time in his word, learning to cherish him and see what it's like to know his peace and to know his presence during times of great challenge, do we grow to long to be with the Lord Jesus. If this is a longing that is far from you and far from I, pray for that longing. Because when you pray for a longing to be with the Lord, to be with the Lord, it completely and radically changes the way you wait in the now. I cannot uh, uh, escape Paul's words when he would talk to the church at Philippi, telling them that, man, he was in a straight betwixt two, as we call it in the King James. But he was in this moment of tension where he was like, man, to stay here would be beneficial to you, but to go home to be with the Lord would be, man, that's the end game. And he was really tender about which one he wanted to do because he loved the church greatly and the work of the gospel greatly and knew that God would get great glory from that. But wow, does he long to be with the Lord. How often do we find ourselves with that kind of essential battle happening in our hearts? Or is our longing and our waiting for something far less heavenly than that? So our hope should be framed by a desire to be with the Christ. Well, our joy is also akin to our hope. If it's framed by the gospel, or framed by our relationship with Christ, let's look at the Bible again here in verse 19. For what is our hope or our joy or our crown or our boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? While my hope should be to be with the Lord as his coming, my joy should be to be like the Lord while he is coming. I want to be made like Jesus while he is on the way. Once again, if we are spiritually maturing, focused on those things that are essential, what happens during seasons of waiting, when life is being agitated, when the forces are not what we feel they should be or what we would like to be, the Lord is shaking out some of the non-essential priorities in our lives and allowing those things that are or should be essential to come to the surface. We should not only have a hope to be with Christ at his coming, a real hope that we're longing for, but we should also have placed great joy in being made like him while he is coming. I can't forget those words, that famous passage of scripture that says, Lord, teach us to number our days and to apply our hearts to wisdom. You see, as we number our days, if we rack up the birthdays, as the Lord does give us a very specific uh, time on this earth, our chief joy should be that this is yet another year, another week, another month, another 24 hours to be further conformed to the image of Christ. And how is he doing that? And when that becomes out the essence of our joy, man, it is a joy indeed to readily observe how the Lord is making us more like himself. So my hope should be to be with the Christ at his coming. My joy should be marked to be like the Christ, be made like him while he is coming. John has something to say about this in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 through 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and we will be uh, as, excuse me, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So when it is my chief joy to be made like the Christ on an ongoing basis and to be hope to be with the Christ when he comes, it uniquely and radically changes my own pursuit of holiness. Again, it brings out things in my life that are more essential. But then Paul also says 
that what is our hope, what is our joy, what is our crown, or what is our boasting other than you? So Paul talks about how much he cherishes the spiritual welfare, the wholeness, and the discipleness or the disciple-making process of those saints that are at the Thessalonican church. Now follow this carefully. Our crown should be this also. These are the markers of great spiritual welfare, that we would not only be with Christ at his coming, that's my hope, to be like him while he is coming, to be made like him while he is coming, that is our joy, but to bring others to Christ before his coming, right? Because it's time out. I mean, the stopwatch is over on all disciple-making and evangelistic efforts when the Lord makes his return. And so our crowning joy should be like that of Paul's. Paul says, the primary thing that I want to boast about before the Lord when he shows up is you. Those of you who have come to know him, who have been made like him, who have become his disciples, who formerly did not know him, who previously walked in darkness but now are in light, those who have become redeemed, those who were formerly cut off from the promises of God but now walk in them and know him as father and has become his peculiar people. Paul says that is his primary bragging right. Isn't that awesome? But isn't it also convicting? Man, when I die, is that going to be my bragging right? Is my crown jewel going to be the number of people that I have led to Christ? Do I take the greatest pride of all accomplishments in my life? Do I take the greatest pride in having made disciples or in something else? This is how waiting brings about or brings to the surface and makes us aware of things that are most essential. Understand, you can't emotionally conjure this, and this is not an intellectual trek to raise your awareness of things that are most essential. It is the work of the Lord in our lives to raise our awareness. One, through the reading of his word, because what is it that he's actually looking for to bring about in our lives? But at the same time, the external circumstances that allow things that are non-essential that have become our focus and our crown and our boasting and our bragging right to just shake away and we see how futile, vain, and useless they are. Well, now here's the question that we need to ask. We've looked at at least three aspects of my spiritual welfare, but what's happening behind the scenes in terms of my hope, my joy, and my crown when it comes to spiritual warfare? Well, I'll tell you. You see, spiritual welfare, these are the things that Christ wants to build in us, but spiritual warfare are the things that Satan wants to come and steal from us. Jesus told us when he was the good shepherd, he says that Satan has one agenda, and that is to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to tarnish our joy, to take away our hope, to, to tarnish our crown, to tamper with our faith, to, to, to manipulate our love, and also to ruin our blamelessness and holiness. Well, when it comes to our hope, here's what Satan wants to do by means of spiritual warfare. He wants us to have a hope that is shallow and short-term. When we look at challenges, suffering, pain, disappointment, and all the events that happen during seasons of waiting on God sometimes, he wants us to adopt this as our t-shirt or as our life phrase. Let's just get this over with. Let's just get through it. Let's just get over it. Let's just get out of it. As opposed to let me gain what God desires to build in me as he is working non-essential stuff out of me. When it comes to my joy, spiritual warfare does not want us to be made like Christ while he is coming. Spiritual warfare desires to take our joy 
and, and tell us that ignorance is bliss or to have us to walk in ignorant bliss. That is, how can I make myself happy regardless of the current circumstances? And when making myself happy regardless of the current circumstances becomes the source of my joy, this is when all manner of addictions and all kinds of useless and vain practices become our preoccupation. And some of it may not even be as overtly sinful as the big ticket items that many of us might think about, you know, sex, lies, drinking, drugs, etc. Many of us as believers, some of us as believers, feel pretty uh, firm in our faith to be able to avoid those things. But Satan is a master of counterfeit, if you've heard in, as you've heard in previous messages, by coming in behind very subtle things in our lives that are not overtly sinful, but yet they are not helpful. They actually become things that bind us and become the sources of bondage. And they are not, because they are not sinful, we don't immediately push them out of our lives, but they can become sources of illegitimate joy, ignorant bliss. Well, the Lord is not only interested in helping us to have a balanced hope, a proper joy, and a real boast or brag in Christ, that is, uh, bringing others to the Lord. And Paul said it this way over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, like, if any man boasts, let him boast in this, let him boast in Christ. This should become my principal boast. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know of anybody who's got this list perfected. This is a part of what waiting does. The Lord allows us to see through the agitation of struggle and strife in life, what has become the source of my hope? What has become the source of my joy? What is my bragging right in life and what has become my crown? But also take a look with me at verse, uh, chapter three, verses two through three. You see in chapter three, it says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, uh, we were willing to be left behind at Athens. That is, Silas and Paul would send Timothy. And we sent Timothy, our brother, uh, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. That no one be moved by these afflictions. Now I want you to notice the two or three works that happen to ensure that these believers were not moved by their afflictions. Uh, one, someone came to encourage them, to establish and exhort them. But then also, Paul says, when we were with you, we told you that these times were coming. The Bible, in its both prescriptive, telling us what we need to do, and its descriptive nature, telling us how things are, is a beautiful antidote to having our faith shaken during times of trial and waiting. Because we know the storms are coming, we can be better prepared. Have you ever stood out maybe out on your porch or your deck in your backyard and you were planning on doing something only to be greatly disappointed and moved by the fact that a massive storm came rolling over the hill that you weren't ready for? But have you ever felt other times when the same storms may have rolled in, but because you were already aware of the report, while it didn't reduce the intensity of the storm, it did increase your readiness for the storm. This is the same function that the Word of God serves in our lives. If we'll take it seriously, it's like a weatherman, if you will, making us ready for storms more so than preventing storms in our lives. But this faith, uh, factor number four in our spiritual welfare, our faith is intended to make us to be steadfast in afflictions for Christ. Steadfast in afflictions for Christ. I love the work that 
uh, uh, Peter, uh, the words of Peter around this in First uh, Peter chapter one verse seven when he says, "So that being, uh, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the result to result in the praise and glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ." Trials are used by God to actually produce greater genuineness in our faith. Our faith is actually refined during times of trials. It is the ups and downs, and the Lord wants to gloriously and wonderfully maintain us through ups and downs, through disappointments, through loss, through gain, showing us what standing fast looks like and how he could only keep us. This only emboldens and improves our faith uh, when we are waiting on the Lord. But during times of spiritual warfare, you know what we end up doing or what we can do if we're not fully focused on the Lord? Our faith isn't refined, it gets redefined. Here's how. If you're not careful, as a Christian, in an effort to avoid, to avoid struggle and to live a life of ignorant bliss, we can have a faith that is defined by t-shirts, bumper stickers, trinkets, new notebooks, designer cover Bibles, etc. I, I can read that list comprehensively because I own all of them. And I know exactly what it's like to you know, want your faith and people to know that you're a believer by virtue of a, a beautifully designed lapel pin that might provoke curiosity and someone will ask you, oh, what does that mean? Why is that dove crashing to the ground, right? And you get a chance to explain that this is this historic uh, emblem of the Holy Spirit and maybe you can enter into one of your gospel um, conversations. But here's the deal. Real faith isn't found in the display of trinkets. The Lord doesn't want to polish up our faith through the latest of Christian jewelry, bumper stickers and t-shirts, and Lord knows I have a lot of them. But real faith is not redefined through those gestures, but real faith is refined through seasons of waiting. And the Lord wants to do that in us so that when people do make an inquiry of us and why we trust in the Christ, that we are readily armed with real examples and not just t-shirts that say wonderful slogans and cliches about how nice God is or pictures of John Calvin or some other cryptic logo that draws us into uh, to, to explaining certain seasons of church history. The Lord wants to refine our faith, not redefine it through trinkets that have become so typical of Christian expression during uh, in Western culture and during this contemporary time. And so, uh, the Bible continues to help show us that our uh, hope to be with Christ at his coming, our joy to be made like Christ while he is coming, our uh, crown to bring others to Christ at his coming, uh, to have brought others to Christ at his coming, our faith to be steadfast in afflictions uh, as we are waiting for Christ's coming. But also there's something else that we see in uh, chapter 3, verse 12. And that's this. If you read down with me, uh, Paul says, uh, verse, beginning with verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself and the Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Right? That we may establish your hearts blameless and in holiness before, the God, before our God and Father. Now follow me carefully on this. This kind of 
fifth element of spiritual welfare for believers that is made more essential or clearly defined during times of waiting on him and affliction. Uh, our love is this call to be selfless when it is very easy to be selfish. It is a call to be selfless when it is very easy to be selfish, right? Um, this, uh, one of the phrases that we are very familiar with here are the one another's. There are about uh, 47 of these gestures that clearly define certain attitudes in the scriptures that we should have toward one another. Uh, some of them uh, speak to the humility that we should have, others the kind of service that we should have, others the pursuit of unity that we should have uh, toward one another. But the Bible is just littered with references as to how we should move toward one another. And the way it defines love is always toward another, not just toward ourselves. As a matter of fact, the only time that the Bible speaks about self-love is to make sure that that is the standard we use to love others, right? Remember when Jesus was asked about the two great commandments, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Self-love has never been uh, a primary focus of the Bible. The Lord loves us greatly, showed that great love by sending his son Jesus Christ to die for us on the cross, to bear our sin, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, and then turns around and says, now if you have been recipients of that kind of love, would you go out and introduce others to this love through the sharing of the gospel? And then will you in turn, after having shared the gospel, will you show the gospel through how you love others and place the concerns of other people even above that of yourselves? Well, the reason that I press on that so much is because while spiritual welfare is about how we move in selflessness during times that might call us into greater selfishness, is because when we're waiting and times are tough and things are not going well like we would want them to go, selfish love or only loving myself because I have limited emotional bandwidth, limited uh, resources, self-love really becomes the human reflex. No one has to teach us how to love ourselves. But I guess, according to some of the websites, we do. Because I'm starting to hear a great deal about self-love and self-care. Not against any of those. Not against anybody having any bath salts or going to get your feet done or your hands or uh, ordering special soaps with fragrances and making yourself feel good, aromatherapy, uh, or taking a nap. I'm not against self-care. But I do want us to be clear that in our pursuit of self-care, that self-care does not translate to a character of total self-focus and selfishness, where no one else in our lives benefits from what the Lord has blessed us with or who he has grown us to be. As a matter of fact, while being selfless is one of the markers of spiritual welfare, being selfish is one of the indicators of spiritual warfare. You see, love under the selfish uh, 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 agenda is one that looks like this. It's a party, and here are the invitees. Me, myself, and I, and oh, any of my fans. Anybody that is also willing to mutually participate in a focus exclusively on me. These are the things that can come into our lives and make us a more selfish people, where again, self-care becomes a substitution or a pretty term for selfishness. And so let us make sure that during these times that we are being particularly uh, mindful of opportunities to love others and to be selfless when the natural and cultural reflex might be to be selfish. 
these are the markers of spiritual welfare and also ground zero for spiritual warfare in our character in many regards. And so this final one found in verse 13, we've touched it twice here, but so that you may walk, um, uh, you may be established and your hearts be blameless in holiness before your God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and all his saints. Here uh, we see the, uh, the, the, the scriptures call us to a walk of holiness. Why? Is this just another segment of the Bible where God wants to control our lives and just make us to be moral prima donnas, help us to become the goody two-shoes of our neighborhoods, the people who don't litter, who always pick up behind their pets, uh, the folks that don't play loud music? What is actually God's agenda when it comes to this call to blamelessness or holiness? Well, I think the agenda of God is always the same, to be glorified in having a people whose lives fully reflect who he is. We should be reflectors of God's holiness. You see, when our lives reflect holiness, it becomes one of the greatest advertisements for him and his kingdom and his Christ. Uh, the Bible put it this way, let your good works show or shine before men that they would see them and then not glorify you, but glorify your father that is in heaven. Well, that advertisement is incomplete or it's actually false advertisement if we wave our hands and say, man, my crown is Christ, my hope is in Christ, my joys be made like him. Uh, I love the Lord Jesus Christ and I want to advertise a life for Christ that others would come to know Christ. That's false advertisement if we ourselves are not walking in blamelessness. And so walking in holiness is a crucial part of our Christian advertisement of the beauty of life in Christ. But there's also something else I want to bring out to you. You see, a walk of holiness or a life of blamelessness is just good offense and defense when it comes to the Christian life. I want you to understand that during times of challenge, during times of affliction, if there's anything you want to be able to do is to go before the Lord confidently, consistently, and to hear from him clearly. When we are going through challenges, when we are experiencing affliction, when we are waiting on God, when we are seeing the Lord clearly separate the essential from the non-essential in our lives, I want to go before God confidently, without hesitation, hear from him clearly, and I want to be able to walk with him consistently. I want to be able to walk in the spirit. I desperately need to hear his voice, to know his presence, and to feel his hand guiding my life. And you do too. There is nothing more powerful, as David would put it, that yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. You are with me. We need the presence of God in times that would normally give us pause. We need this presence all the time. But a lifestyle that is pursuing holiness and blamelessness is crucial to that. I mean, you know clearly for a fact that uh, when you've not walked rightly before the Lord, that there is not a lot of confidence in your prayer life. Your prayer life is somewhat faithless because you're not sure if God wants to hear from you because of your sin. The Bible even tells us explicitly that uh, uh, if I regard sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear my prayers. It even tells married couples that if we're not working together properly, if the husband is not appealing to the wife as a weaker vessel, that it would hinder the answering of prayers. 
the Bible makes it clear that something about sin and sinfulness in our lives put us in a position where we are not confident in our prayer life, we're not consistent in, in, in our walk in God's presence with his Holy Spirit because we're walking in the flesh rather than being filled with the Spirit. And so the call to live a life of holiness and blamelessness is not just checking the box of morality, it's great offense and defense when it comes to spiritual warfare. Because if at any time where Satan is warring against me and trying to shake my faith, if there's any time, it's this time that you and I need to be able to go to God confidently, hear from him clearly, hear from him clearly, and to walk in his presence and to know that he is there with us consistently. And it is a lifestyle of blamelessness where I am quick to recognize my sin, move to repentance immediately so that I can also begin to talk to God and reverence him and to praise him and then to, to even appeal to him and make petitions of him and not have my own conscience convict me as I'm trying to ask the Lord to help me. I'll give you this uh, analogy. If you've ever known a husband and wife, maybe you are one, or maybe if not, maybe you've just seen your parents. Uh, two people can walk in very close proximity but be miles apart when there is a rift in the relationship. That same thing uh, can happen with us in our walk with the Lord. If we're not blameless, it's not like the Lord leaves the room. It's not like the Lord leaves his people. We're still legally and spiritually connected, but there's a certain coldness there because we've not walked blamelessly. And I want us to be able to go before the Lord again confidently, hear from him clearly, and to walk in his presence consistently. And that is what blamelessness does. And this is why there is such a fight against your holiness from Satan. Because he knows that a major part of your spiritual welfare is to be able to have that connection with God. And therefore, he wants to tamper with it. He wants to have us to live our lives on plan B or to treat holiness like it's plan B, like it's some sort of emergency measure that we only pull out when we really need to talk to God or that we only lean on when things get really tough. No, the Lord wants to hear from us all the time. He wants us to walk in blamelessness before him consistently, confidently, so that we can hear from him clearly. Right? Holiness is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's not an emergency escape hatch of the believer's life. It's something that should always be on deck if we are walking in proper spiritual welfare. So just to close, spirit, the markers of spiritual welfare, as we find in our passage today, our hope, our joy, our crown, our faith, our love, our holiness. That is our longing to be with the Christ, our desire to be made like the Christ, our commitment to bring others with us when we see the Christ, our desire to be steadfast in afflictions for Christ, the ability to be selfless when life is calling for a reflex of selfishness, and then to walk blameless as a top priority in my life and not the plan B or as a second measure in my life. These are things that we need, believers, in order to walk before the Lord in times like we have now. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ that, that, that enables those to be more than just vocabulary words. If you'll notice that hope, joy, um, our boasting, our crown, our faith, our love, and our holiness have no definition the moment that you remove Jesus from the equation. They're all circular. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, your hope is in what? Something that you've created, something that fades? Your faith is in what? Yourself and your own ability. Your boast is in what? Something that you built. 
It is only with Christ, it is only in Christ that we can have a hope, a joy, and a crown, a love of faith, and a pursuit of holiness that actually works. We need the supernatural engagement of God so that these things become practical and actualized in our lives. We can learn much from the Apostle Paul, but one of the things that I cannot escape from the way that he talks to the saints here at the um, Thessalonican church is how deeply he cares for them and the welfare of their souls and the fact that the work that he poured into them would not be in vain, that they would stand firm in Christ regardless of the conditions that are beating against their life. So I want to pray for us that we would continue to trust that the gospel is not just the message of our conversion, but it is also the message of our ongoing conformity. You see, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead in victory over sin, death, and the devil, ensuring our victory in times of spiritual warfare, is what also provides the essence of our hope, joy, and crown in our spiritual welfare. We must place our faith in Christ, not just as an initial investment, but as an ongoing investment to see ourselves constantly be made more like him and to be able to do life in the way that he does. That is to love others selflessly when we might have a reflex to live selfishly. So um, let's pray gospel hope and uh, I pray that you've been blessed by God's word. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come, we beg and ask that you would um, enrich us, Lord God, in the message that uh, uh, we've just shared and that in that you would um, help our hearts to savor what is most essential during this time, that we would not be aggravated by the issues around us, but we would see exactly what you're trying to separate through this agitation. We pray, oh God, that as we wait on you, that our waiting would not be in vain, that our hearts would long to see you come, long to be with you, long to be like you, long to bring others with us, Lord God. And uh, that as the world sees how we respond in these moments, they would be attracted to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.